our children, for our jobs, for our income, that he should be the one we trust. So let's make sure that as we are searching our lives, we're not thinking, well, I don't have a statue in my home that I'm worshiping. Because that's not where the problem easily can be. It can be anything else that takes that first place other than God. We saw in um, Hosea how God dealt with uh, the people of Israel by sending Hosea to, to marry uh, a, a prostitute and in the process uh, use that as an illustration for Israel. In the book of Joel, what we have noticed is that chapter 1 and chapter 2 were primarily about the chastisement that was being threatened and how the people of Israel should respond, or better still, the people of Judah should respond before calamity hits. So those two chapters were primarily ongoing warnings, ongoing warnings that uh, um, a northern kingdom is about to come to destroy you. And therefore, as we saw this morning, weep, wail, mourn, fast, do all these things to show God that you've genuinely repented before disaster falls. That's what we saw in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And there were references every so often to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And we'll see it again in chapter 3. And basically, the day of the Lord refers not to the Lord's day, which is the day of worship, but to the day when he would come in judgment upon the people, in judgment. And it would be that, that extraordinary judgment such as you've never known before. And that's why it's not a day of the Lord, it is the day of the Lord, the unforgettable day that is coming. Towards the end of chapter 3, uh, sorry, towards the end of chapter 2, uh, we, we saw a hint of uh, God not just coming in judgment, but also coming to save those that repent. So that's what I want us to begin as we read the rest of this book. And uh, verse 30, verse 30. Maybe for the sake of uh, those of you who might know verse uh, 28 and 29 better, let me begin from there. It's what was quoted by uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And the point I made there is that it is referring to Gentiles as well as Jews on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And the young men shall see visions. The point there being, it, there will be no uh, discrepancy or um, separation between old men and young men, old women, young women, men, females, and so on. There will be no, no difference there. Uh, even on the male and female servants in those days, 
I will pour out my spirit. My spirit. And then this phrase, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day it is, day of the Lord comes. And then here was the hope. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that's where Peter ended when he was quoting this passage. However, here is the extra that uh, Joel spoke. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, obviously pointing to the fact that the judgment has come, the armies of the world have come and destroyed Israel, but then there will be those who are saved those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls, those whom the Lord will save, those who will be his. So that's really where that chapter ends. However, as you've noticed, if you've got a Bible like mine, um, really verse 30 of chapter uh, 2 all the way to verse 8 is in prose. It's not in poetry. Uh, and therefore it is one large chunk. And it's important for us to ask ourselves the question, what is it talking about? I want to suggest to you that this entire section from where we have begun all the way to verse 16 is largely about the way God is coming to destroy those same enemies of the people of God. The nations that have now come and uh, um, taken the people of Israel into captivity. I'll soon read it and you will see. Verse after verse, that is what it is talking about. But before I read it, I need to say something. Bear in mind, that God is referring to these people, who the survivors who are going to escape. These people are without an army anymore. They, they've got no fighting capacity. And yet the, the, the nation that they are, or the nations that they are going to overcome are, are the most powerful nations on the planet. In other words, this is inconceivable. And therefore you can understand why Joel takes so long from where we are beginning here all the way to verse uh, 16 saying over and over and over again, these nations will be defeated. In fact, I I'm the one who's going to do it. Okay, so let's, let's quickly go through this. Um, I'll be reading it and commenting as we go. I just want, I don't want you to lose what it is all about. Verse 1 of chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I 
restore the fortunes of Judah and Israel. So it's not your doing. I am the one who is going to uh, give to Israel and Judah a wonderful season afresh. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, they, there was no such a valley. The, Joel is speaking in um, picture form. Jehoshaphat, the name, actually means Jehovah Judges. Jehovah Judges. So it's basically saying, I'm going to bring them to the place where I will judge them. I will destroy them. And so that's what he really means. And in speaking about a valley, again, it's simply because wars used to take, battles used to take place in valleys. People didn't fight on mountaintops. They would come down the valleys, an army from this side and an army from this side, and they would sort each other out in the valley. And then only one of those armies would then be able to, to go back home. So what he is referring to here, therefore, is that I am bringing all the nations, these powerful nations that have destroyed my people, and I will meet them in that place where Jehovah judges, Jehovah punishes. And hence that phrase, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and they've divided up my land and they've cast lots for my people and they've traded a boy for a prostitute and they've sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Again, notice, I will do it. It's me the Lord who's going to come in and deal with these people. Notice the, 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 the value that they had now placed on the people of Israel. Have you noticed that last part there? They have traded a boy for a prostitute. And by prostitute, it simply means a, a one night with a prostitute. So taking an entire human being and selling him at the price of spending a night with a prostitute. Or, as it says here, selling a girl for wine. Again, for, for a bottle of wine, which they drink. There it is. They've drunk it. Bam! Finish. That's the price, the value that they had now placed on God's people. God's people. He's referring, he's referred to them there that... Uh, my people, my heritage, my land, my people, and so on. Those who belong to me, this is the kind of value that you have put upon them. So I'm now coming, and I'm coming to sort you out. The title of my sermon is The Glorious Future of God's Repentant People. And the point is, we can have that confidence in the midst of the worst persecution, in the midst of the most powerful enemy, primarily because 
It is not up to us. It is the Lord. We are his and he will do it. In this next paragraph, basically, in, in um, dramatic form, God speaks to the powerful nations of that day. And he says, What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? What is it that he wants to say to them? Let me give you the meaning, and then we will soon read so that it makes sense to us. And it is this. He's basically saying, you know, I don't owe you anything. So, when I now come to punish you, you cannot say, hey, 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 hang on, hang on. I, I thought we agreed. You are failing on your side of the deal. So he will be speaking here saying, I don't owe you anything. In fact, the truth was this, that the reason why they managed to destroy Israel and Judah was that they were merely an instrument in God's hand. God wanted to punish Israel and Judah. So having punished Israel and Judah, he was now simply coming back to the instruments that he used in order to punish them as well. That's really what is happening. Let's quickly read that. Verse 4. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will steer them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. So, there's nothing to stop God from coming to discipline these people. There's nothing to punish them. He doesn't owe them anything to hold back. So he says, I am truly coming. You remember I mentioned the fact that the people of Israel were without an army, they were without government, they were without any real defense. And so, even as Joel is speaking here about what God is going to do in the future, so where he's speaking now, the final punishment hasn't yet come. It's about to come. Once it comes, they will have no defense, no power, to fight anybody. But he's now going beyond and he's saying at that point you will still be rescued. And so this is what he now says. He's saying come together now and fight. But I love the way he puts it at the very end of verse 10. Let's read this. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. 
Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior or I am strong. Now, the, the, the basic point is they were slaves now. And the only iron tools they had in their hands were plowshares and pruning hooks. They had hoes and they had axes. Those are the kind of things that they had. Slashers. That's what they had. And he is saying, don't worry. These are what you would turn into weapons that are actually going to win the war. Fashion them and go into battle. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Let them turn these into weapons and let them go. And as he puts it there, even the weak should now say, I am strong. I am a warrior. Guys, let's go. Why? Because God is on our side. He continues, Hassan, and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations tear themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I've already described it there. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. It goes back into picture language there. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, trade, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. And then the final two passages there, again, in this valley now, in the valley. Picture language. Imagine now the thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 and, and millions of people gathered to fight this weak nation. But God is on their side. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord, we know that phrase by now, is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. If you just keep a finger there and turn to chapter 2, verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. You can understand why, therefore, the last verse here says, The Lord rose from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So, all the other nations <clears throat> are being slain, being slaughtered in this valley, in their millions. They are being destroyed. But the people of God are safe. Let's take a few steps backwards. When is this going to happen? 
If you were living in Joel's days, you would have concluded that it is when the people of Israel come back during the Persian uh, kingdom. Remember, there was initially Assyria, then there was Babylon, which is also called Chaldeans, and then after that came the Medes and the Persians, and then came the Greeks, and then came the Romans, and during the Romans, that's when Jesus came. So you would conclude that this is going to happen when under the Persians, under uh, Cyrus, they are now coming back with Nehemiah and Ezra and so on, coming back to rebuild. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. They were still an oppressed people. They were still oppressed under the Greeks. They were still oppressed under the Romans. That much you know. You've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When will this happen? The only way you can actually capture it is by going back to Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and verse 29. It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see, vi- your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. When is that? Thankfully, All of you here, you know. You know when that was. It was in the new covenant. It was on the day of Pentecost. And we all know because that's the text that was quoted by Peter. And he said very clearly, what is happening now is actually what Joel said. Is now being fulfilled. Okay. So, what we are looking at in chapter 3 is actually not something that is going to happen in the days of the actual Israelites. As I know, it says in that last verse, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. What is actually happening is this is a foretelling of the final end of human history. It is speaking in terms of, on one side, the church, the New Testament church, you and me, and the way in which the world treats us and looks at us and persecutes the people of God across, even the New Testament, across the entire world. And then it is referring to all the unbelievers on the other side, the enemies of the people of God. So it's completely changed as 
Joel here is speaking. Now, the only way you can understand Joel speaking like this, remember what I said. A prophet looked down a road. He is seeing all these hills and hills and hills, and finally seeing a mountain at the end. From where he is standing, he is speaking relative to what he knows. So when he's speaking in terms of um, the, the spirit being on all flesh, he's just thinking it is all the Israelites. That's all he's thinking because of where he is standing. But where, when you get there, remember what I said, when you're traveling a huge distance, you're thinking, okay, after this hill is the next hill. But when you actually get there, you discover there's so much distance between the two hills. But you see, where the prophet is standing and is looking, to him it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, when this happens, soon will this, and then, yeah, that, and then. And yet, it's actually covering the whole of history. The whole of history. By the time we'll be coming to the end of this chapter, we've actually reached the end of human history and the ushering in of eternity. I'll show you that in a moment. And yet he will still be speaking as if it's Zion, as if it's Jerusalem, and so on. But us with New Testament eyes, we are seeing the bigger picture. So, very quickly, before I go into the glorious future of Judah here, let me quickly summarize. So what he's talking about here is not simply what Judah should do or what uh, Israel should do in terms of putting together its army. What he's talking about is actually in New Testament language that we, 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 we don't have weapons, at least in terms of the weapons of this world. Our weapon is uh, the farming instrument. It is actually just God's word. That's, that's the only weapon we have. The gospel. That's our only weapon. And that's the one that we will go with. We are weak, but in Christ, we are strong. We are marshalling together an army of boys and girls and, and people that are of no account as far as the world is concerned. But friends, let me put it this way to you. It's the greatest army in the world. It's the greatest army in the world. The Christian army. And the battle is heading for the end. And in the end, Jesus Christ himself will come and destroy his enemies. So it's actually looking, although it looks like it's Judah and Israel and so on, if it wasn't for chapter 2, verse 28 downwards, we could argue. But now we can't argue because it's actually been fulfilled in the New Testament. Let's continue, therefore, from uh, where we left off. Verse 17, we just have a few more verses remaining. But what I want you to see there is uh, the Lord himself now coming in to bring in this new kingdom, this glorious future for his repentant people, his true people. And the very first thing he says is this, for you shall know 
that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Strangers being outsiders, that they will never again be part of it. Which is actually what the New Testament church, by the way, is all about. The New Testament church, number one, is this, in the words of Jeremiah, they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. They will all know me. For I will forgive their sins. The New Testament church does not include unbelievers. Israel did. It included unbelievers. All you needed to do was to trace your background to Abraham, and you were in. And one of the reasons why it was a complete disaster was simply because so many of them had no real relationship with the Lord. But in this new phase he's speaking about, they will all know me. No outsider in the sense of no unbeliever shall ever again be part of it. But listen to this. This is the glorious future. And in that day, the mountains, by the way, this is picture language. Don't think there's any mountain that will be like this. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And I love this. And the fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Matthew Henry, you can guess what he said. This fountain is Jesus Christ. And I say, ultimately, a hearty amen to that. Ultimately, he is the fountain from which all that is sweet, sweet wine, milk, water, and so on, will flow out of the house of the Lord. Basically speaking in terms of the salvation that we'll experience on earth, and more than that, the glorification that we'll finally have in heaven. What is happening is this. Joel is looking at a distance, and is basically saying to those who are listening to him, there's a glorious future that's coming. I can see it. In the ultimate, ultimate distance, I can see it. It's glorious. Can you imagine a mountain that's dripping sweet wine, hills that are flowing with milk and water that's gushing out of a fountain, and it is uh, satisfying the longings of, of all the people of God, the, their greatest longing is satisfied in this fountain. That's the plan that God has for his people who right now are about to be punished. They were about to undergo punishment. But God is saying, for those who repent, I have a bright future. And then for the rest, 
here is the bad news. Here's the rest. Look at the contrast. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So there's a sense in which yes, something like that was beginning to happen when there was some restoration that took place in the days of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. But anybody who lived there and read this would say, uh-uh, there's something more glorious being spoken about here. And thankfully, we have seen that God's ultimate purpose go beyond Judah and Israel. It is about my people. And my people are no longer just Jews in the Middle East. It is now the church of the New Testament. And what he is saying there is that he is going to avenge our blood. All the persecution that the people of God suffer is going to come and avenge. He's going to punish all the enemies of God's people and is going to give instead his people. I always want to add his repentant people because it's the, the restoration afterwards is going to give them a glorious future. An unbelievable future, if anybody was to think about it. Well, friends, as we end Joel, thankfully, what he was saying has already begun to happen 2,000 years ago. It's already begun to happen with the pouring of the Spirit, the new covenant coming in, and we are now the beneficiaries of all these promises. What is this saying to us then? It is this. That let's begin to rejoice now in these grand promises of God. Yes, they are ours. We are not in the outer court anymore, peeping in and saying they are the people of God. Wow, look at the promises for them. Wow. No, 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 no. We, as we read even in Ephesians, we are now God's people, Jew and Gentile alike, who've been brought in by the cross of Christ, by the spirit of the living God. We are together built on the same foundation, the foundation of Christ and the apostles and the New Testament prophets. Everything has now been put there for us. We ought to be rejoicing that although we are in enemy territory, although the world thinks we are useless and worthless and treat us like pawns on a chessboard, we are the winners of this entire battle 
we, the Christian church. And when the Lord himself descends, he will completely vanquish the unbelievers and usher us into that eternity that we long for, that glorious eternity. Only if we are truly God's people. Only will we be participants of God. May each one of us in this building today ensure that we are in the right relationship with Christ. With Christ. So that we might indeed be the ones that will be part of his glorious future. I think our closing hymn will be, but what shall it be to be there? Am I correct? Yeah. I pray that as we will be singing it, we'll sing it in the spirit of Joel, that that will be the mountain dripping with wine, that it will be this inexhaustible fountain that quenches our thirst in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Amen. Grateful to the Lord for that uh, powerful message about the glorious future of